History happened everywhere. A random place, a random time, and a topic pulled from the hat. The challenge. Find the fascinating, uncover the unexpected, and share the stories. You're listening to... History happened everywhere. And welcome to History Happened Everywhere. My name is Ryan Weir, and I am in the HHE podcast studio here with the Alfred to my Batman. It's Mr. Peter Goddard. Thank you, sir. <laughs> is that how you see me? You're uh, your butler, your Batman at best. Yeah. Batman's Batman. Well, I was going to say Robin, but then I I don't know. I think I'd rather be an Alfred than a Robin. a Robin. Also, I look terrible in tights, so <laughs> I'll stick with the suit and be Alfred. That's fine. Talking of comic book characters, I understand you went to the cinema this week. Are you a, you a good cinema goer? I, I do love the cinema. I love, love, love going to the cinema. I especially love going to the cinema in the off-season when there's nobody there. Right. Being on your own in the cinema is one of the best feelings there can be. Yeah, it's probably happened once or twice to me where I've turned up and I've literally been alone in a giant cinema and it's been the most marvellous experience. Dare to dream. candy guzzler do you um, twizzle those wrappers well I'm not a fan of popcorn particularly which is obviously your go to cinema snack I do like a bit of a sweet treat maybe a chocolate Malteser or something similar Uh, but I have to confess I have been known to sneak my Maltesers in for a lower cost alternative my goodness I'm I'm a payer I'm not a sneaker I understand that and I should be past sneaking sweets in given that I'm much older and I have plenty of money to do purchases of small bags of sweets Yeah, Uh, and I should support my cinema but I do support them by having a glass of wine in the cinema oh now that's a very adult beverage it's for a cinema going experience it's I mean cinema wine is not the finest of wines I'll be honest (laughs) but uh, it makes me feel sophisticated and debonair Are you a checker of your phone during a movie? You're triggering me, Ryan. I, I am not. <laughs> and those that are, there's a punishment of the most extraordinary degree that I can think of. Yeah, it just glints in the corner of your eye, doesn't it? Just, it's so vivid, so vivid. Who's checking their messages? I just watch the phone. Right. So what do you what do you snack on? Are you a big bucket of popcorn man? Yeah, yeah, large popcorn, large slushy drink thing. You must be like just absolutely jacked on sugar and yeah. <laughs> I often wonder though because it's quite a noisy snack, the popcorn, right? And the rummaging around in the box. There are those rummages. <laughs> there are rummages. <laughs> Making it feel a bit like Seinfeld. <laughs> It's the rummager. It's the rummager. Um, but it's true. Like, everyone should be eating marshmallows. Exactly. Absolutely. Everyone has one, one non-crinkly bag of marshmallows to eat or nothing. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Sometimes you don't know, do you, until you've, you've opened your snack in the cinema and you put your hand in and it's gone... Oh, like, oh dear, I'm that guy. Yeah. <laughs> and then you have to weigh up your need for sweets versus your <laughs> need to not be a menace to society. What about comfy seats? Do you pay extra for a comfortable, a more comfortable seat? Uh, no, experience tells me that A, the more comfortable seats are no more comfortable than the <laughs> comfortable seat, the non-comfortable seats. And B, I like to be much further towards the front than most people. So right. I, I very rarely are the comfortable seats where I want to be sitting. Is that poor eyesight? Uh, I think I just like the, the screen to really loom over me. Okay. And also all man eyes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right, enough chit-chat. It's time. Peter, to tell us about... Oh, I've forgotten what it was. If only there was some way to remind ourselves. Hmm, okay. I'm going to hit the rewind button and let's see if that tells us. Do it. Okay. Right. Okay, are you ready, Peter? I'm ready, sir. Okay, so your country is... NATO. Oh! So it's not one country. It's uh, the collection of countries that form NATO. The collection of countries that form NATO. Oh, great. Okay, that's interesting. How you interpret that? Yeah. Up um... to you. Okay, and your time is... Once upon a time. Once upon a time. Ooh. That's interesting. I'd forgotten we put those things this in. This is the most like open one. Yeah, you've had I can do what I want. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, so I guess it's all down at the topic now, yeah, isn't the it? The topic is... <laughs> Ecology. Ecology. Ooh. I 
I genuinely don't know what to make of that. I don't either, but I'm going to make something of it. That much, sir, I guarantee you. So it's NATO, Once Upon a Time, and Ecology. Right. So this is wide open for me. I felt I could have just picked a NATO country. I could pick any time. And Ecology is the only thing that really was seemed to be fixed. I have no idea where this is going to go. Normally you've got like a kind of a, a hint, right? Between one of those three things. But I know nothing about any of these three things. I too was unsure. So Cool. I have got something though. This isn't a total bust. All right. I'm sitting up straight. Right. You have my attention. Proceed. So where are we? NATO. Right, well, that's not a place, is it? It's a collection of places, or you might call it an organisation. More fully, it is the North Atlantic Treaty Organisation, also known as Organisation du Traité de l'Atlantique Nord, or OTAN. So nice. it is both NATO and OTAN, depending on which language you choose. Which is well, NATO backwards. Exactly. So it's kind of a palindrome, but it's a palindrome in two different languages. I'm not sure if there's a word for that. Le palindrome. So, so what is it? What is NATO? It is an intergovernmental military alliance, basically. So that's a group of people who say, if someone's coming to get you, we'll help out. But only in your area or globally? Well, we'll talk about more about this, but uh, essentially now, globally, it started with okay. a very specific purpose that we'll talk about. But uh, yeah, any, anywhere you need help, mm. we'll come and help. Yeah, because the words North Atlantic <laughs> are fairly prominent in their uh, in their name there. Yeah, so no, it's, it's, they will function, function globally. And there's also the North Atlantic Treaty was originally signed between people across the North Atlantic. But <laughs> yeah. uh, it's spread a bit further than that anyway. So okay, uh, cool. it's kind of a broader concept than that now. Mm. So it's between 28 European countries and two North American countries. So what is it is an organisation. Where is it is Albania, Belgium, Bulgaria, Canada, Croatia, Czech Republic, Denmark, Estonia, France, Germany, Greece, Hungary, Iceland, Italy, Latvia, Lithuania, Luxembourg, Montenegro, Netherlands, North Macedonia, Norway, Poland, Portugal, Romania, Slovakia, Slovenia, Spain, Turkey, United Kingdom and the United States. I missed that. Could you, would you mind just... Um... Albania, Belgium, Bulgaria, Canada, Croatia, Czech Republic, Denmark, Estonia, France, Germany, Greece, Hungary, Iceland, Italy, Latvia, Lithuania, Luxembourg, Montenegro, Netherlands, North Macedonia, Norway, Poland, Portugal, Romania, Slovakia, Slovenia, Spain, Turkey, United Kingdom and the United States. I missed that. Could you, would you mind just... Albania, Belgium, Bulgaria, Canada, Croatia, Czech Republic, Denmark, Estonia, France, Germany, Greece, Hungary, Iceland, Italy, Latvia, Lithuania, Luxembourg, Montenegro, Netherlands, North Macedonia, Norway, Poland, Portugal, Romania, Slovakia, Slovenia, Spain, Turkey, United Kingdom and the United States. I missed that. Could you, would you mind just... Yes, it's not all right okay thanks so i thought this not being a country was going to make this little intro bit that we normally do quite difficult i can tell you it is at least one france (laughs) (laughs) that would be the french bit (laughs) yeah but funnily enough, it wasn't as difficult to have some of the sort of similar things we talk about, even, even though it's an organisation of a country, because they have a leader. Mm-hmm. That's the Secretary General of NATO. He's the Chief Civil Servant of the NATO organisation. And he's actually a diplomat, not a military leader. He's not a general or something or admiral or something. Okay. Current leader is, uh, the Secretary General is called Jens Stoltenberg. Right. He's a former Norwegian Prime Minister. Oh, cool. Uh, he's been there since uh, October 2014. He's been there since then and is going to go for, he was recently extended until September next year. So he's been knocking about for a bit. Are there any famous ones from the past that I would um, know? There are some of the military ones, probably. I'm not particularly, I don't think particularly the Secretary General is a particularly noted, not like the UN. Right, I was going to say Kofi Annan was one yeah, that seems to spring to mind. Yeah, but... I think that's, I didn't, I don't come across any that were okay. like, oh, it's that guy. Right. They kind of have a government in that they have what's called the North Atlantic Council, which is the political decision-making body. Uh, and this is quite interesting because it's kind of, it's I say it's a sort of a government, but it's more like a club than a government because they don't vote on things. Everyone is it's responsible for their own activities and actions. So fundamentally, they kind of discuss things and go, what should we do? But they, they don't go, well, we've all voted to do this, so we all get behind it. You're still oh, all wow. separately responsible for what you get on with. It's got a headquarters in Brussels, as many things do. Yeah, <laughs> central, right? Yeah, they've kind of got an army everyone's army contributes when a treaty is invoked but it actually has a rapidly deployable core which is a sort of group of people who are already always assigned to nato jobs i guess and they are led by the allied command operations so there's two arms to the nato military side of nato life which is the allied command operations and they command what's going on in terms of their deployments to various parts of the world to help out with bits and pieces wait sorry i'm a little bit confused just say a setback so every country has their own army yes and then a 
portion of that army are you NATO duty? NATO duties, and then those NATO soldiers get sent to a location. So they're the, the sort of, or do they just stay at? So home? the rapidly deployable core are kind of your. We can get these guys into the field really quickly on NATO business. Okay, but the whole army of all of the Allies would, in theory, be available for the NATO action should they be called upon. You know that would take a while. It's like we all need to agree, but ultimately all of those soldiers work and fight for the army of their country so nato okay. doesn't control them it can't tell them what to do but they, they right. do because it's a it's an it's an alliance right? yeah okay so you don't work for nato you're not a nato soldier you're an italian soldier or a german soldier but you are in this force that is allocated to, okay. to nato tasks all right cool so they're not all in one building together no no they're, they're spread around 28 different countries all trying to get together no yeah quite out. so they're, i mean the the organization of nato does have that because they have to have their meetings and decide what to do but uh, in terms of the people on the ground it's more a deployable force that is living in their various countries so that's the allied command operations so they're operational things but there's also allied command transformation and they're responsible for the training and the sort of forward-looking stuff of nato so what you'll find is the nato started with a very clear military objective um, which we'll talk about but the world got more complicated and now nato has quite a significant future view of what threats do we need to think about now in a world that is no longer a cold war world with clear enemies terrorists could pop up anywhere you've got environmental disasters so the the allied command transformation is all about how do we make an organization that's fit to help out in situations that we see coming now and in the future that's important because we're going to talk about that arm of it particularly today so like a country, they have a flag. Their first flag was in 1951 and it was a green flag with the coat of arms of the Supreme Headquarters Allied Powers Europe. And that was the sort of the military side of NATO life. And that first flag was actually designed by kind of a committee, including General Eisenhower. Oh, right. Unexpected design skills, it turns out. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Do you reckon the word shape came first and then they tried to fit the words around it? I think it did. It feels a bit like one of those many Marvel organisations, sword and shield and spear. Right. Yeah. <laughs> shape it's not quite as scary is it so this original flag is a bit complicated and it's uh, it's not that attractive in my opinion but it didn't last long anyway because the the flag that they use today was first put up in november 9th in 1953 at the opening of the atlantic exhibition in paris and it is a dark blue flag okay and it's got like a white compass point you know that kind of cross with the tapering points yeah. uh, it's got one of them in the middle and a circle around that and uh, the nato secretary general at that time a guy called lord ismay explained the symbolism he said it's a four-pointed star representing the compass that keeps us on the right road the path of peace and a circle represents the unity that binds together the 14 countries of nato okay i love it so nice and simple isn't it exactly right so Just it has a, a flag. blue flag with a with a white little arrow in the middle exactly and it's not surprising that they have a flag but it is what did surprise me was they also have an anthem what the, the nato hymn is the the song of nato are you kidding me no i kid you i just you know i was, so I was delighted when i found this out i mean it, it is beginning to sound an awful lot like an actual country it's the, the, the parallels are definitely there aren't they this was composed in 1989 so a relatively recent development by a guy called andre Riechling, who was a luxembourgian officer and member of the military band unsurprisingly right it was actually composed to commemorate the 40th anniversary of nato uh, and it was performed at a gala that year and then it was used for a bunch of years and then in 2018 it was actually adopted as NATO's theme tune I suppose so I've, I'm going to play it for you and it's um, I found it strangely uh, soulful kind of yearning it kind of makes me puts me in mind of a, a 1970s Carla Lane sitcom and okay listen to this see what I mean though? it's got a soulful yearning about it it's not martial at all is it no It feels kind of Christmassy to me. Christmassy? Like oh. I've just gone to a little... The snow's coming down. Like a little Christmas market. The brass yeah. band's playing. child rushes up to his parents and <laughs> yeah. gives him a big hug. <laughs> it's not got the pomp and ceremony to it. It's, it's weirdly calming and nice, isn't it? Cycling up a cobbled hill, delivering yes. bread. <laughs> That's just terrible. I, just, I quite like it. It's, it doesn't seem like the anthem of an organisation built for war, does it? 
But I suppose that's part of the point. They would say they're not an organisation about war. Right. That's a nice ending. So there it is. That's the NATO hymn. Oh, um, that's good. Wow. Interesting use of the word hymn. Yes. Well, I suppose they can't call it an anthem because they're not a country, so they had to use some kind of word. And yeah, theme tune seems trivial. <laughs> theme tune. <laughs> <laughs> it's the NATO theme tune. <laughs> yeah, but hymn, like, it's got a connotation to it, though, isn't it? It does have a religious overtone, Religion I think feel. it's fair to say. Yeah, because now I'm looking at the flag, it looks a bit sort of religious-y too now. <laughs> It's like Scientology or well, something. It's not religious. So, <laughs> okay. So you see what I mean by it? I was surprised how country-ish all the sort of trappings that you get of a country apply to this organisation. But it's also illustrative as to how it's not a country, which is it has no laws. It has no enforcement Land. power of those laws, if it had laws. So fundamentally, as I was saying, if you are under a NATO commander and you decide not to do what he told you to do, mm. If he, assuming he wasn't from your army, you, you couldn't be punished for that. You probably wouldn't be celebrated for it either <laughs> if you were out there. But, uh, you know, the, the, there isn't a legal hierarchy over these people. Okay. It's, it's a collective of people who agree to get on rather than an organisation that has certain rules that you must obey and follow. Okay, right. So, yeah, that's that's what NATO is. That's where it is. It, it's beginning. It just feels like a club. Very much it is a club. Right. But, like, do they do anything? Well, let's find out. Okay. Huh? Uh. <laughs> <laughs> right, so let me give a potted history of NATO. Okay. 10,000 years ago. <laughs> I was not expecting that. Early man. There was early man. No way. What was early man doing there? Well, early man picked up a branch and he belted another early man around the head with it. Right, okay. Things carry on pretty much like that until <laughs> World War II. <laughs> yeah. So life is a violent business for quite a long time. And then World War II comes along and things really hit the fan in an industrial scale kind of devastation. Europe gets devastated. At the end of World War II, you've got the communist Soviet Union looking at the suspiciously at the capitalist Western powers. And pretty much nobody felt very safe at all, despite the fact that there had just been a very significant war that had finished. It's a pretty common trait, isn't it? for humanity throughout time it has happened a lot yeah so I, I skipped over quite a lot in the middle but you, you get the gist <laughs> <laughs> a lot of sticks being hit a lot of people exactly okay. so on the 4th of march 1947 so just two years after world war ii mm. the treaty of dunkirk was signed and this was between france and the united kingdom uh, and this is a treaty of alliance and mutual assistance in the event of a possible attack by germany or the soviet union okay so these big guys are still scary Let's have a little club. So post-World War II. Just, just after. The Allies it, got together. France and, and the United Kingdom. Two of the Allies. Two of the Allies, that. yeah. It's interesting that the French and the English would do that first. They're not famous for getting on particularly well. I think they, they had a rough war, so they realised they had more in common than they had uh, separating them. Okay. But uh, after the Benelux countries joined, it became the Western Union. Uh, also Sorry, known what as Benelux? Benelux is Belgium, Netherlands and Luxembourg. Oh. Never heard that. Oh, no, Benelux, you will probably come across it now. You've heard it once. Yeah. Uh, that was also known as the Brussels Treaty Organization. Okay. But then people wanted to include North America. Probably they wanted more chewing gum available or something. <laughs> yeah. I don't know. Uh, or possibly their massive industrial and military might. So on the 4th of April, 1949, the North Atlantic Treaty was signed. So that was between the Western Union, that's France, UK, Belgium, Luxembourg and Holland, mm. plus the United States, Canada, Portugal, Italy, Norway, Denmark, and Iceland. So they all got together and signed something? They all signed the North Atlantic Treaty, right. forming the North Atlantic Treaty Organization. And do they do that all together? Like, do they all get together in one room and sign it together? Uh, traditionally, these things have a bit of theatre whereby everyone sits around and passes the, the mm. pen around. So do you reckon they have like a party afterwards? Like I'm, a, a treaty I'm almost certain party. there's a disco. <laughs> yeah that would be amazing <laughs> yeah the nato disco the post-treaty disco N-A-T-N-O We are in N-A-T-N-O We are in N-A-T-N-O 
North Atlantic, we are A, agreed on tactics, we are T, treaty signing, we are O, organizational, we are NATO, we are N, non-aggressive, we are A, all defensive, we are T, trading warfare, we are O, also friendly, we are NATO. We are N-A-T-N-O N-A-T-N-O We are N-A-T-N-O So it starts with not a lot of actual organisation and force. It was just a treaty between countries, as we've seen in loads of previous podcasts, where you just sign a piece of paper and say, yeah, I'll help you out if something kicks off. Yeah. Um, but then the Korean War happens. Oh, okay. So in the Korean War, you've seen the emergence of Soviet power, right? They've successfully tested nuclear bombs. Mm. So now there's like that parity in the big weaponry. The communists were victorious in the Chinese Civil War. People are getting worried in the West about the sort of rise and spread of communism. And in the Korean War, the communist North was a trigger as they invaded the South, mm-hmm. as we talked about in our career episode last week. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Our last episode. Uh, and that made the Western powers think, well, well now we're quite worried worried about the spread of communism and president truman at that time said i felt certain that if south korea was allowed to fall communist leaders would be emboldened to override nations closer to our own shores he's probably not wrong he's probably not wrong this is known as the domino theory it was also Mm. applying in vietnam and various other places this fear that we don't intervene over there it's going to just spread and spread and spread yep so this inspired a big surge in the development of a joint military capability to help with this situation and that meant they were the formation of the supreme headquarters allied powers europe or shape which mm-hmm. we've discussed already that was 1951 and that established military structures and plans it had an, a leader applied who was dwight d eisenhower and um it had a headquarters in the parisian suburb of rocancourt which is near versailles so this this organization i mentioned included a couple of things of note stanags which are standardization agreements so you if you've got two armies working together you don't want them all working on different ways of doing things and all re- tuning into different wavelengths of the radio you want to have standard ways of doing things so that you can communicate. So bring this to life for me. So um, at this point, do America and the others just sort of hand off responsibility to shape, to monitor and track the red peril? <laughs> well, no. So that, yes and no. There is an element of it which is predicting what the enemy will do. But the, the reason there's that division between the operational and transformational units of the organisation and the governmental side of it, the, um, the North Atlantic Council, which is kind of the political side is that nato occupies this this strange middle ground between being essentially a military force but also it it has political implications so the way the nato works is it's it has policies and it has activities that try and assess what threats might be but it's still answerable to the the governments at home that choose whether or not to be part of this organization and whether or not to participate in their activities but do they like act as the middleman between each of these nations to come up with a plan no they have to that's what the club is about right you have you all agree we say so that the NATO might have I don't know our radar tells me that there's a load of Russian activity over here mm-hmm. and we think we should install a new base in that area yeah uh, but that would have to be agreed by the country that you want to host the want to host the base so that's important because as well as standardization agreements you have status of forces agreements and that is essentially a contract if you're going to let 50,000 American soldiers live in your country whose laws do they obey do they obey American military law or do they obey your civil law in your country Mm. um what are they allowed to do where where are they allowed to live what are their rights how much are you allowed to have nuclear weapons stationed there or not okay so essentially there's that stuff out exactly so there's it's a negotiation between the countries themselves nato as an organization may identify a threat and say we think you should have a base but the country still needs to agree to allow that base to be there they do you could just get these countries together and they just agree it amongst themselves right so a traditional treaty would be just that you yeah you just go help you come and bring your army and sort it out so no and this what 
Shape was doing was to create an organization that was kind of a ready-made structure yeah. and both in decision-making and activity. So it wasn't a load of armies that were all co-located, but they had had to learn to work together. And so the, hence there was agreements about standardizing the way you did things or the agreements about who could be where and and what rules covered that. So Shape was, a, I'd say, a, a framework plus. Mm. So, so it has some technology, it has some budget, but it doesn't have tanks. But they would also have trained all these people to say, well, we'll do, well, a lot of this is going to come out in the later stuff. Okay. But they will, they prepare all these forces so that they are able to work together. Because if you just say, right. can you come and have a fight with me? Then everyone shows up and everyone's got different equipment and everyone's got different ways of doing things and they don't know how to communicate with each other and you don't really know who's in charge. And that's very complicated. Okay. And it's a chaotic situation. Whereas NATO says, well, here's a framework. We're going to put this guy in charge. And although you don't report to him in a normal military way, we've all agreed that he's in charge and that's good enough yeah so now this guy's coordinating some french people over there and some italian people over there and some german people over there and they all have their own equipment but they've already agreed previously and trained together and worked together now okay we're all going to use uh, the same size bullet so that i don't have to do italian bullets to that camp french bullets to that camp and german bullets to that camp okay but they they have agreed and practiced and you know funded and and prepped yeah to be able to function as a single force okay last question does nato go to all the countries and say we're going to go and attack this country or do the countries go to NATO and go we want to attack this country organize it probably both I would argue okay. there's a political right. that's why I mean there's a political dimension so there's probably things they wouldn't if America went we want to just randomly attack Somalia it's a defense organization they are not there to just be an army for whoever chooses to use it okay it's a it's a defensive organization so you right. must identify a threat in order for NATO to respond to it they won't just ah. roll around doing what you want to do because they're not your army yeah so the the main part of or the most important part in a way of nato is or the most significant is article 5 which says if someone attacks me you're going to come and help out that's the big heart of nato in a way right okay that makes sense okay yeah so the the, the formation of shape introduced this structure this framework the standardization agreements and the status of forcing agreements forces agreements that allowed people to start functioning together so instead of historic treaties which was just come with your army and help me out it was now we're starting to interact and and work together as an integrated whole and that's the big difference do you feel threatened alone in a hostile world you should do is your neighbor looming ominously do they want to invade you and take everything probably at nato we understand how it feels to be vulnerable to want security in a dangerous world That's why our country cover offers you the peace of mind that comes with 10,000 tanks and an aircraft carrier. With NATO, you won't have to be afraid anymore, but your neighbours will. Call NATO now for a free no-obligation quote. Terms and conditions apply. The value of your policy may go down as well as up. Article 5 may be invoked at any time, and if you cannot keep up your training, your army may be at risk. So, so that was in that was uh, in 1951, right? 52, Greece and Turkey join the uh, join the event. 1955, West Germany join. This is really significant because post World War II, West Germany was or Germany as a whole, but West Germany was kind of disarmed. They didn't want them to have a big army, but to enable them to be a useful member of NATO, West Germany had to be allowed to rearm. And the French had been historically nervous about that. But in 1955, they come back and become a NATO state. But this had its own problems because that triggers on the other side, the signing of the Warsaw Pact. I don't know if you've ever heard of the Warsaw Pact. I've heard of it. It's kind of the counterpoint to NATO. And I hadn't realised that NATO came first and the Warsaw Pact came second. But basically in 1955, the Warsaw Treaty Organization was signed between Soviet Union and seven other Eastern Bloc socialist republics in Eastern Europe. Oh, I see. So it's like their equivalent. That very much so. Right. So if they've got NATO, we'll have the Warsaw Pact. Exactly. Very good. So 1966, France get fed up of not being taken seriously in the military side of the NATO organization. So they withdrew from the military component. So they would still come to help, but they weren't training and interacting. And they kicked out the shape headquarters from France because they weren't then part of that military organization. And so shape relocates to Belgium, a place called Casto. And the French, meanwhile, also developed their own nuclear deterrent. That was all part of their, we can do Uh. this on our own kind of mentality. That seems Um, strange, doesn't it, to leave the group? They thought they weren't getting a loud enough voice in the club, basically, is the way it was described to me by the internet. Okay. 
1982, so we jump forwards quite a bit. Spain, which has come become democratic after Franco falls, joins up into NATO. 1990, Germany reunifies, which kind of brings East Germany into the pact by default. Join the club. Exactly. 1991 is the end of the Warsaw Pact. The Soviet Union is falling. So the obviously the Warsaw Pact is uh, as part of the casualties of that uh, end of an era, early 90s activity. Now, this was an interesting period because the point of NATO up to that point had been to resist this communist block. <laughs> yeah, the threat. So now suddenly, why, why do you need NATO now? Right. Um, That's a good question. There was a bit of a reduction in the size of the armed forces, but there's still things to do for NATO. Um, and I'm guessing there's money flowing in and out of NATO now. And you can't just close There's always a sense of these organisations that they have to, they exist in part to maintain their own existence. Yeah. Right? It's so like a lot of these big charities and stuff, isn't it? Where, you know, let's say you solved world hunger tomorrow. Well, now you've got a big, a big old company with hundreds of thousands of employees <laughs> exactly. that are suddenly now, well, what do we do? They'll have to find something to do. And they yeah. generally do exactly that. So in 1992, the collapse of Yugoslavia caused the Bosnian War. Uh, you may remember that. I don't know if you're, how you're old enough. I, I remember the Bosnian War. So, yeah, that was some various horrors going on there and the United Nations was very concerned about it. So NATO intervened there. 60,000 soldiers went and uh, visited <laughs> Bosnia uh, in a police, effectively a policing operation. There was bombing of Serbian targets. Similar thing happened in Kosovo, 1998, also a hangover from the collapse of Yugoslavia. But in a defensive... Well, this is where it gets quite interesting manner. because... Who was attacked, right? It was a civil war fundamentally, but the United Nations said, can someone do something? And NATO did. How defensive that is, I'll leave to you to conclude. But So the UN said, will somebody do something? Uh, on the first one, yes. Uh, then okay. they, there was some criticism of some of the other stuff they've done as having not been, had been a bit too uh, independent, if you will. So the United Nations got together, they looked at that situation and they said, we need to get in there and help these people. And the only way that we can do that, rather than just asking the Americans to go in or asking the French and the English to go in, we'll send NATO in. Well, I mean, the United Nations has its own forces, right? The blue, the blue berried, blue helmeted forces, their own forces, yeah. but they work for the United Nations as a peacekeeping force. So I'm not exactly clear on the, in that. I've, I didn't look into this super deeply. I'm no, just, sure. But, but yeah, certainly NATO did some things that were not United Nations inspired, a bombing of Belgrade being a particular example. Right, um, okay. So how were they operating within their remit there? I'm not sure. I'm, and that's not what we're talking about today, so I wouldn't okay. dare investigate it any further. Um, but they continue to expand. NATO continue to expand, even though the big bad guys are no longer there. Right. Um, and in fact, that's almost part of it because they start getting friendly with some of the ex-Eastern Bloc nations. So in 1999, Czech Republic, Hungary and Poland joined NATO. 2004, Bulgaria, Estonia, Latvia, Lithuania, Romania, Slovakia, Slovenia. You're really pushing out into Eastern wow. Europe. That must have really cheered up Russia. Russia were delighted, I'm sure. <laughs> 2007, the French come back and go, can, can we be in the military bit again? <laughs> <laughs> okay. Uh, so they make a, a sterling comeback into the, the shape organization. Imagine leaving like a big membership of like countries and just why would you I mean, do you're stronger that? together. Why would you right? just go off and think you can do it on your own? You're only going to come crawling back Later. and beg for re-entry. Yeah, it's strange. Crazy. Brexit means Brexit and we're going to make a success of it. So I mentioned Article 5 earlier. So Article 5 is the linchpin of the, the piece, which says it requires member states to come to the aid of any member state subject to armed attack. Okay. Now, in the history of NATO, Article 5 has only been invoked once. Oh, wow. Okay. And that was after September 11th. No way. In 2001. Okay. So that inspired a sort of anti-terror operation and a bunch of NATO aircraft from various countries went flying around over the skies of America, keeping an eye out for terrorists. And also naval activity in the Eastern Mediterranean was there to look out for illegal trafficking and other terrorist activity as well. Wow. Okay. And that only the, once. The only time Article 5 has been invoked. I wonder what the other articles are. Certainly one to four. <laughs> yeah, maybe six to ten. We don't know. Uh, yes, it could, could be loads. They tend to grow these things, don't they? Yeah. Subsection four, paragraph three says, yeah. Article one will wear <laughs> red berry. <laughs> yeah. Treaties will be signed and ended with a party. 
Do you think signing a treaty is like uh, filling in a form where you have to use only black ink or it doesn't count? Yeah, probably. You took a green pen to a treaty signing. Was that the whole thing off? <laughs> a green pen? <laughs> it's going to take a green pen. <laughs> like one of those pens with multiple inks that you just pull the lever down at the end. <laughs> exactly. Perfect. <laughs> Hello there. I'm Snow White. Why, what funny little creatures you are. Now, don't tell me who you are. Let me guess. Luxembourg. I'm going to call you Tiny. Oh, yeah, we are a small nation, yes. And France. Why, you're grumpy. Britain, I'm going to call you Stuffy. Well, I say. Hungry? Why, you're just hungry. <laughs> it's true. Greece? Well, you're just greasy. What? A- and Montenegro. I'm going to call you... Monty. Monty is fine. Thank you. And good old U.S. of A. I'm going to call you Yankee. Why, thank you, ma'am. But now, we got to get to work. NATO. 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 It's off to war we go. With a rifle and a spade and a hand grenade. NATO. 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 It's off to war we go. With a rifle and a spade and a hand grenade. NATO. 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 It's off to war. Right. So that, sir, is the history of NATO. Right. So the time is once upon a time. Yeah. That leaves it... How are you going to cover this? ...pretty open. So what do you think of when you hear the phrase one, once upon a time? I think of fairy tales. Fairy nursery tales. Nursery rhymes. Fairy tales, children's stories, stories. And children's stories particularly, yes. Well, the earliest use of the phrase once upon a time we know is thought to be in 1380 with the, the story of Sir Ferumbras, kind of French chivalric tale. Okay. Uh, actually, it's Unis upon the day... Is, nice. Uh, that was good. And that's uh, my middle English skills coming yeah, through. Yeah, it was really good. That was better than your French. <laughs> <laughs> so stop me if you've heard this one. Once upon a time, of all the good days in the year, on Christmas Eve, old Scrooge sat busy in his counting house. Yeah, that's great. And so that's a famous once upon a time. It conjures an image, doesn't it? Uh, you're probably thinking of more. You said fairy tales, and I thought fairy tales when I heard this. Hans Christian Andersen's tales start with Der war en gang. Literally, there was once. Okay. Uh, and the Brothers Grimm in German, Eis war einmal, it was once. It was once. So, in fact, there's something almost universal about starting this, mm. this almost codified way of starting a story. And there was an article in Scientific American by a psychologist and writer called Maria Konnikova. And she says, basically, we're, we are not speaking of a defined time, a time you can point to, but a once, an indeterminate moment, mm. right? And she says, basically, it creates this distance. So it's not a specific thing. It's this universal, but also safely distant story. You can say and think things from far away that you can't say and think up close. For a child, this means the possibility of comprehending far more about reality than can come from reality itself. Oh, wow. Okay. So that safe distance to learn lessons is once upon a time. Yeah. And it truly, truly seems to be a global phenomenon. So here are a selection of once upon a time equivalents from cool. different countries. Oh, this is great. So Thailand, and these are English translations. Yeah. <laughs> Thailand, once upon the time, long ago. In Bengal, in some country there was. Okay. Chinese, a very, very long time ago. <laughs> I like that one. Hindi, it's an old story. It's an old story. It's an old story. Japanese, long ago, long ago. Nepal, once in a country, and of course, one you will know, a long time ago in a galaxy far, (laughs) far away. Do you know what? That was the one that immediately sprung to mind with all this. So, I mean, you look at the spread of those countries. That is not a bunch of European countries who've sort of shared the language. It seems to be all over the world, this sent this ability to start a story, a, a formalised way of doing it, a well-recognised, I'm about to hear a story, combined with a vague indeterminateness to, uh, it was a while ago, but listen up. It's wonderful, isn't it? Everybody gets triggered back to being a child again. Right, exactly. And so I'm going to encapsulate what Once Upon a Time means for the purposes of this podcast by taking a phrase from this article by Konnikova, which was tales that aren't real, but help us take away some important message or lesson for the real world we live in. Oh, wow. That's great. So that's the time period I'm going to cover. Not real. Right. Okay. But with lessons for the real world. Yeah. 
It'll All make right. sense. I love Trust that. me. Including <laughs> ecology and NATO. All right. So, yeah, um, <laughs> ecology, I'll, I'll say less about them once upon a time. This is the Oxford English Dictionary definition. The relation of plants and living creatures to each other and to their environment. Nice. That could mean basically anything in my view. So uh, we're going to look at things that never happened but we, could, we can take lessons from regarding interactions between creatures and the environment. That sounds great. That's what we're going to do. So strap in, let's begin. Or you might say, once upon a time. So before I tell you my tale, I would like to thank unnamed NATO employee for oh. their help in this research who okay. would not be recorded or named uh, and I'll be honest was so extraordinarily diplomatic was re- relatively narrow in their helpfulness but uh, helped give me a flavour of uh, stuff that was frankly the information was widely available but uh, kind of gave me a better sense of the kind of on the ground feel for things deep throat exactly. in NATO yes yeah, so I have a source that I cannot divulge that's, that's, so that's pretty exciting yeah that's very cool <laughs> so anyway where were we once upon a time right the time being 2018. <laughs> In a country far, far away, we'll call Norway. So in 2018 in Norway, right. Norway was attacked by a neighbour. Article 5 has been triggered and NATO forces rushed to the area to defend their ally. 50,000 individuals from NATO allies and Sweden and Finland were dispatched to the area. 250 aircraft were sent, 65 ships, including an American aircraft carrier. 10,000 vehicles were dispatched, Leopard 2 tanks, amphibious assault vehicles, trucks. The leader of this organisation or this force was Admiral James G. Foggo, the commander of the Allied Joint Force Command in Naples. Foggo. Yes, Foggo. Okay. Uh, Not my source. Uh, I did write to Admiral Foggo, actually. Oh, this is a real person. This is a real person. This is all true. Okay, so... Right, see, because I don't know what's true and what's not anymore. no, you don't. You've set the stall out. No, Admiral James G. Foggo is indeed the commander of the Allied North uh, Joint Force Command in Naples and was in charge of this event. Uh, And I wrote to him and he replied saying... I'm pretty busy, actually. Yeah, leave, leave me alone. <laughs> but he replied, so I'm pleased with that on its own. <laughs> so between 25th of October and the 7th of November, there were movements of troops just south of Trondheim, uh, which was the capital of Norway during the Viking Age, side note. Uh, and uh, at sea, NATO ships were in the Norwegian coastline. They're in the North Sea, the Baltic Sea, and Skagerrak, which is the little sea gap between Denmark and Norway. Okay, I didn't know Skagerrak. That. Yeah, in the in this in the air, the skies of Sweden and Norway saw aircraft manoeuvring. What? This you, all happened in 2018. Do you remember any of this in 2018? No, no, but it all happened because it was. Uh, an event that was a NATO exercise called Trident Juncture 18. Ah, I see what you've done now. This is great. Right? The attacking nation was a fictional country. Okay. Um, But the troops and the tanks and the the ships and the aircraft were all very real. Right. They all turned up on a fictional basis. Right. It was a huge exercise to learn how to get troops from A to B, how to work together, what uh, information they can get. So this all comes under the Allied Command Transformation role. You know, I said <laughs> Allied Command Operations and Transformation. Transformation is training. Yeah. This is a big training exercise. I've got to say, I'm very impressed. That's a good way of doing this once upon a time. That's really good. Yeah, fictional training thing. Sideways That's move. very, very good. <laughs> so, so why do they exercise like this? So we talked about standardization. So they test their interoperability. Yep. So lots of nations, they, they buy their own equipment. There's not a NATO shop that they all get their stuff from. But they have certain standards that enable them to one function together. So yeah. I mentioned bullets earlier. 7.62 is the standard NATO standard for small arms, the bullet size. Okay. Likewise, just in terms of how you work, if Army A's command for go is go mm. and Army 2's command is start and you've got right. someone shouting go and only half the troop run off, <laughs> you've got problems, right? So right. standardization and interoperability are things that you're really trying to develop in these exercises. It is a problem, isn't it, when you get loads of different cultures and or countries together to try and coordinate on anything. Exactly. Because there are so many differences. Right. And then also there's a logistic. So the other part of this huge test was to test the logistics. Can you get the people who need to be where they need to be yeah. and the equipment they need to do it 
into place in the time you need them to do it. But it's also testing the information landscape, right? So the, the unnamed NATO connection that I've made. It talked about the, the fog of war. So this comes as a phrase coming from a Prussian military analyst in the 18th century, I think, called Karl von Clausewitz. And the fog of war is you don't know what's going on most of the time, basically. Oh, okay. So it's this chaos that means how do you really make good decisions when you can't really see what's happening? Right. Uh, and that's a very classic military expression. I think the uh, there's a documentary about one of the American commanders called the fog of war all right but anyway uh there's a different problem now which has been described to me as the fog of more which is a sort of swamped information landscape there's so much information coming in you cannot unravel what is true from not true so this is your sort of fake news if one person has a fact and then 20 people add a lie into the list of things how do you sift that fact from the lie how do you know the information that you're getting is correct and how do you weed out the good stuff from the bad that's especially relevant uh, at the moment, you know, given in the age of um, fear that we live in and Absolutely. fake news. Exactly. And so the, the the fog of war is now the fog of more. So I didn't know what was going on because I couldn't tell because I couldn't see anything is now I can see way too much. And I don't way know what's true, what's not true. That's fascinating. Okay, cool. And these exercises take place at different times at different levels. So that this the, the, was a quite a high, I guess, command level exercise, this uh, Trident Junction. And it's less about do we send John down that corridor and shoot with his rifle and more about can I move 10,000 people and 50 trucks 100 miles with the equipment and the communications that we've got Right. Do, do the orders work? Do, can I get through to them? Do they obey their order properly? Do they understand it in the same way? So it's not really about having a battle at the end of it it's just the, the can you move the chess pieces around the board basically. Okay. So that's all the practical purpose of this these exercises, but there's much more to it than that. It's uh, that's practical anyway, and that's not what we were talking about. We were talking about once upon a time as having a moral lesson, and there is a whole other dimension to doing an exercise like this, in particular for Trident Juncture 18, which is that Norway has a 120 mile long land border with Russia. It does, yeah. At the time of this exercise, Russia had recently popped up in Crimea and Ukraine and was playing a role in Syria. So Russia was flexing its muscles to some extent. So the the Council on Foreign Relations have a Eurasian security expert called James M. Goldgeier. He said, this exercise is part of NATO's ongoing efforts since the 2014 Russian invasion of Ukraine to reassure member states bordering Russia that the alliance will defend them against Russian aggression. Oh, okay. So there there was a, this wasn't just a test just to check that all these things work and that they all use in the same language and that everything's in place, but also a slight message to the the, the neighbours to the well, right. NATO left. absolutely deny that the unnamed enemy was Russia. They never use real countries for these exercises. It's always unnamed or made-up named country. Mm-hmm. They are absolutely certain that they are a defensive-only organisation, and this sure. was in no way sending a letter, uh, message to Russia. That's Russia did not see it that way in any way. They uh, saw it as kind of a threat, which was a bit rich, because in 2017 they'd done pretty much the same thing on their side. So Russia started a much more modern form of conflict, Twitter beef. Twitter <laughs> The Russian embassy UK Twitter account said, NATO constantly assures us that its military exercises are not against Russia, yet for some reason they use particularly Russian-like uniform and military (laughs) hardware during them. Wonder why? (laughs) That's great. NATO aren't having it. They clap back. They they send a tweet that says, a quick reminder on geography. Use this map next time someone claims NATO is encircling Russia. Hashtag fact check. Then a little For real, map. this actually is <laughs> real Twitter. What world do we the, live in? We've this escalated. The war's kicked off. So <laughs> this is nuts. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, out of interest, did Russia ever try and join NATO? Like, is it ever no, put in an no, application? No, 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 no. No, they would never do that. Okay. Well, they might eventually, but uh, certainly would NATO ever include them? I don't think that's how this is going to... I mean, ultimately, yeah, I suppose in a different world when we're all pals and we've got a more obvious common enemy, yes. Yeah. But, aliens. Well, quite probably. When the aliens attack, maybe NATO will become global NATO. NATO. Yes, exactly. So in addition to the Twitter war, the Russian spokesperson Maria Zakharova says that uh, Norway's hosting of foreign troops violates traditions of good neighbourliness adding that irresponsible actions will inevitably destabilise the military and political situation in the north, increase tensions and undermine the fabric of Russian-Norway relations. I mean, I understand where they're coming from with that. 
Yeah, but it, it is provocative, isn't it? But they had just done exactly the same thing to doing mock attacks on NATO-looking areas uh, the they? previous year. Ah. So this is just all part of an ongoing message, tit-for-tat messaging to each other. Yeah. Uh, obviously, both sides absolutely deny all of this, but uh, there you go. Hey, Pete, here's a question for you. Yeah, go on. Why can't we all just get along? Why can't we? I don't know. Have we tried giving peace a chance? I'm not prepared to because I wouldn't have had a podcast. Imagine all the people. <laughs> <laughs> oh dear. Stop. Round in peace. Ooh, ooh, ooh. <laughs> so the devil is in the details here. Um, because what I mentioned earlier is Swedish and Finnish soldiers were participating in the exercise as well. Now, Stockholm had long resisted becoming part of NATO and Helsinki guards its neutrality as well. But various analysts thought that actually Moscow's recent aggressive behaviours in the area in both the exercises and its just general demeanour made them think, I need to get closer to a big guy in the event that this other big guy comes for me. Yeah. So in this instance, fictional invasion led to real world alliances, fictional defences against fictional invasions give us some very real lessons from this once upon a time event. So I'm sticking with the theme of exercises because that was a, a relatively recent one and you can kind of see how it spills into the real world. Mm. But actually it can be a lot more terrifying than that. Ooh. So sometimes stories can get out of control. So <laughs> okay. I think we can all live with a war of tweets going on. Um, but once upon a time... In 1983, <laughs> there was another NATO exercise called Able Archer. Able Archer 83. Okay. Uh, was now, Foggo involved? No, this was pre-Foggo, I believe. Yeah, I'm not interested so if Foggo's not in it. This happened when things were a lot more tense than they are today. Okay. So the Soviet Union still existed, being led by a guy called Yuri Andropov. Mm. And Andropov was a bit paranoid. He's, he was a big communist cheese, and he was the Soviet ambassador to Hungary during the Hungarian Revolution in 1956. Mm. So there was a people's revolution, and Andropov, looking out from his window, basically, uh, and this comes from a historian called Christopher Andrew, watched in horror from the windows of his embassy as officers of the hated Hungarian security service were strung up from lampposts. Mm. So he had been a head of the KGB, uh, and he just right. saw that how quickly things can turn. Eventually, that revolution was suppressed, but the, 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 the paranoia that this created in Andropov of how quickly things can turn uh, may have contributed to what I'm about to describe happening. Okay. He was also a hardliner. He's dedicated to the destruction of dissent in all its forms. <laughs> Lovely guy. <laughs> Over in America, he had President Ronald Reagan. Heard of him. Bit of a hardliner himself in his demeanour. In uh, 1983, on March the 8th, he gives what's called the evil or the empire of evil speech. So he says, Let us be aware that while they, being communists, preach the supremacy of the state, declare its omnipotence over individual man, and predict its eventual domination of all peoples on the earth, they are the focus of evil in the modern world. Right. Stirring stuff. Yeah. Uh, He also said that people who blame both sides for nuclear proliferation ignore the facts of history and the aggressive impulses of an evil empire and in another speech to the house of commons in london same year he says freedom and democracy will will leave marxism and leninism on the ash heap of history okay so that is heavy stuff and to a guy like andropov very real threats Mm. so andropov becomes absolutely convinced that the usa want to basically destroy them and he initiates in his country project you'll like this project ryan Hey, no yeah, way. Absolutely. Were you really surprised when that came out? I had a little smirk to myself yeah, when he was going to write this. So this is from the Russian Raketno Yaderno Napadeni, or Nuclear Missile Attack. Oh, okay. <laughs> so the purpose of this project was to collect intelligence about any plans the Reagans might have about launching a first strike against yeah. the Soviet Union. I mean, I have to say, if you're going to have a project about intelligence, you're going to want to call it absolutely Ryan. a paragon as you are of the yeah. uh, of intelligence. intellectual arts yeah. just gonna have a little sip of my drink have a little <laughs> hydrated for smarts <laughs> so basically he wants to know when the usa are going to start a fight and you know from our point of view certainly i remember this era you thought everyone knew the usa were the good guys they weren't going to start a war they're good old america but andropov why would he worry about a first strike well 
What's the context that Andropov's living in? In 1979, NATO decided to deploy Pershing-2 nuclear-armed missiles to West Germany. These are significant because they basically, it's a truck. It's a truck with a nuclear missile on the back. Okay. So they can be launched from a road, and so they're really hard to find. Flight time from West Germany to European Russia, four, six minutes, something like that. So wow, basically, that's amazing. You've got someone on your doorstep now with nuclear missiles that can hit you before you can finish your cup of tea. That's problematic. So they can shoot you, but you've got the nuclear deterrent, right? Why would someone shoot you if you've got a nuclear deterrent? Well, 23rd of March, 1983, Ronald Reagan announces the Strategic Defence Initiative, which you may remember more commonly known as... Star Wars. Exactly. So this is a bunch of different anti-missile technology, mostly remembered for the idea of space-based lasers yeah. zapping nuclear missiles out of the sky. Which, um, with coming from a guy called Raygun, yeah, is, well, <laughs> <laughs> it was only going to happen, wasn't it? So supposedly this was intended to make ob- missiles obsolete, but what it looked like to the USR, USSR was, right, now you've got missiles you can shoot at us and you're planning a means for us not to be able to shoot back. Yeah. So this whole mutually dis- assured destruction concept is falling apart as far as they could see. Mm. So Andropov feels really threatened by this. He expands the Ryan program. He wants to know when these guys are going to attack. He thinks it's going to happen. So there's guys in America assessing how much blood is being held in blood banks, watching the places where decisions about nuclear matters are made, where they're stored. They're watching the people who are the decision makers. They're watching lines of communications. They're doing reconnaissance on the heads of churches and banks. And obviously they're surveilling the security services and military installation so this is what all those spies were doing yeah during the Cold going, War. oh look at that yeah that's fascinating because you know often we talk about like you know the cold war spies and uh, spying and just general spy stuff but actually what were they spying for like what information well, were they looking for following this it. guy around who you know has got the keys to the local nuclear arsenal no but it's interesting like you know blood banks and things like you yeah, know absolutely. that, that gives peripheral you peripheral matters that right. give you insight as to what's really going on that's not the same as you know wary of nuclear weapons and james bond style stuff that's just much more lower level indication of what's actually happening yeah, like you ripples Rather than looking yeah. for the rock in the water, you just watch the ripples. That is a great analogy. <laughs> so, November 1983, things are pretty tense, as you can imagine. So NATO decide to have an exercise they call Able Archer 83. This starts with a scenario. It's the orange team. This is the hypothetical opponent, definitely not the USSR. They attack across Europe. The blue team, NATO, declare a general alert. The orange team initiate use of chemical weapons. And by the end of the day, they've used chemical weapons all over the theatre of conflict. And at this point, all this is on paper. No one's done anything yet. No. This is the, 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 the prologue to the exercise. Because the exercise wasn't really massively about the deployment of conventional troops. What they were simulating was conflict escalation with a scenario that was to culminate in the US military simulating a DEFCON 1 coordinated nuclear attack. Wow. So for this exercise, they start increasing their encrypted communications in preparation for a pretend launch, right? The key people who are involved in nuclear launches, they're traveling around, they're meeting as they would in preparation for a launch. And to rub it in a bit, NATO decided to make this really realistic and they involve actual heads of state in the exercise, Helmut Kohl, Chancellor of West Germany, and Margaret Thatcher, British, mm-hmm. British Prime Minister, both took part in the same exercise. So if you're a Soviet intelligence officer working right. for Operation Ryan on the lookout for signs that the US <laughs> were going to launch a nuclear attack, then you're watching as the USA give all of the signs of giving a nuclear attack. Like literally all the signs. All the signs. Yeah. So the KGB report, changes in the method of operating communication systems and the level of manning may in themselves indicate the state of preparation for Ryan. Ryan being nuclear attack. Yeah. You, sir, are nuclear attack. I am. So NATO start to work up to a state of attack readiness. DEFCON 5, which is the lowest level, which is called fade out, which is normal situation, up to DEFCON 4. Double take, bit more alert. DEFCON 3, roundhouse. The air force is now ready to mobilize in 15 minutes. DEFCON 2, fast pace. Armed forces ready to deploy in less than six hours. In history, DEFCON 2 has only been reached twice, the Cuban Missile Crisis and Operation Desert Storm. So up to DEFCON 1, which is known as cocked pistol, defined as maximum readiness, immediate response, or described as nuclear war is imminent or has already started. Oh, lordy. So the Soviets are watching all this going, what is going on? So the Soviet Union think they're about to be struck. So they think, well, the only sensible thing to do is strike first. (laughs) Okay. So it starts to ready their nuclear arsenal for real. So now the CIA is noticing things. There's activity in the Baltic and in Czechoslovakia. Nuclear-capable aircraft in Poland and East Germany go on high-alert status, start readying nuclear strike forces. 
Soviet commanders order nuclear warheads to be put on bombers in the 4th Air Army. And Soviet fighter bombers in Germany are put on 30-minute alert. 30 minutes? 30-minute alert. So now the USA gets scared. What are these guys doing? (laughs) (laughs) Enter Lieutenant General Leonard H. Perutz. I mean, we're laughing, but this is... Like, this isn't funny. Like, this Not genuinely, you're half this an hour away from... absolutely serious stuff. So, Leonard H. Perutz is the Assistant Chief of Staff of the U.S. Air Force in Europe. And he's approached by his colleague, Commander-in-Chief, U.S. Air Forces in Europe, General Billy Minter, who asks Perutz if the Air Force should, quote, increase the real force generation, which is the kind of thing military people say. I think it means get that. ready for a fight. Right, OK. Uh, Perut says to carefully watch the situation, but not to increase real alert posture, which I guess means keep an eye on things, don't get ready for a fight. So uh, the reason Perut said that was he hadn't got all the information that had been collected. He was actually thought it wasn't as bad as it really was. And he says, if I had known then what I later found out, I am uncertain what advice I would have given. (laughs) A later analysis describes his decision as fortuitous if ill-informed adding he he acted correctly out of instinct not informed guidance oh wow but by luck or judgment apparently luck with the wrong information but the right instincts it was the right thing to do by not escalating and allowing the able archer exercise to conclude and everything to go back to normal temperatures cooled down and the soviets were able to see that a strike wasn't imminent and then they stood their forces down too so here's the thing. Why don't they just tell people that they're going to be doing, we're doing a test? Well, I mean, they do, but they they knew it was a test. Okay. But they thought the test was then a cover for a, an for a real thing. Yeah. That was their fear. It was okay. like, well, you would say that. <laughs> That's what I'd say <laughs> if I was going to do a nuclear strike as well. <laughs> Pete, I'm not going to punch you. Exactly. But I'm just swinging my arms <laughs> in, in your direction just in case. It's a workout. <laughs> it's a simple workout. Well, in case I have to fight you. <laughs> so, to conclude, Tom Nichols is a professor at the Naval War College, has argued Able Archer 83 was one of the times the world has come closest to nuclear war since the Cuban Missile Crisis. Fantastic. So, to summarise, once upon a time, there was a nuclear attack that wasn't a nuclear attack, that almost caused a nuclear attack that was a nuclear attack, had it not been for one man in charge at NATO, would have seen the most radical changes to the Earth's ecology mankind had ever seen. <laughs> Force the ecology in there somehow. <laughs> I was just wondering where the ecology came in. <laughs> well, so what, what is the lesson though? So first it's a lesson in empathy, right? Re- Ronald Reagan just couldn't believe that the Soviets could think he, that he or America were capable or would ever want to do a first strike. He, in his own autobiography, says, Three years taught me something surprising about the Russians. Many people at the top of the Soviet hierarchy were genuinely afraid of America and Americans. Perhaps this shouldn't have surprised me, correct? But it did. I think many of us in the administration took it for granted that Russians, like ourselves, considered it unthinkable that the United States would launch a first strike against them. But the more experience I had with Soviet leaders and other heads of state who knew them, the more I began to realise that many Soviet officials feared us, not only as adversaries, but as potential aggressors who might hurl nuclear weapons at them in a first strike he he took this really to heart though he said i was even more anxious to get a top soviet leader in a room alone and try to convince him that we had no designs on the soviet union and (laughs) russians had nothing to fear from us and he did he met uh mikhail gorbachev in geneva in 1985 and various summits and that was the start of uh, various non-proliferation summits and treaties he set up communications so that they this sort of thing would not happen again which is Um, great but i can't imagine the invite going over very well i want one of you your your leader alone (laughs) in a room no cops <laughs> no witnesses. Yeah. So, since that time, the lessons were learned, but the world has never been quite so close to a nuclear arm again. So, I think you might say we all lived happily ever after. Yeah. So, that is once upon a time, very vaguely in ecology. No, I don't think so. I don't think so because the ecology part is how everything gets on, it's right? The interaction it's the interaction of the organisms. Yeah. And it's what is like it? What is the hills at war? What is the organism if it's not the earth? Exactly. Right. And we're all interacting on that together. We are the world. <laughs> we are the children. children. I thought it was people. Could be. Very good. Well done, Peter. Congratulations. That was really, really, really good. I've really enjoyed researching this one, I have to say. It was yeah, really I fun. No, I, was, <laughs> I really enjoyed listening to it. Um, right. Well, but now it's my turn. It is your turn. So uh, I guess, guess we've got we to wheel it out first. Okay. So let me, here it comes. And there it is. I love it. I love it. So let's switch it on. 
Okay, we're up and running, Power and uh, let's let's do it. Okay, Ryan, are you ready? We say this every time, and yes, we're never it's ready. It's always a shock. So <laughs> I'm just going to say no. Well, too bad. Your country <laughs> is Ireland. Oh, nice. Right, that's got to be pretty promising. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Your time period is the age of imperialism. Oh, right. Yeah, you easy. know what the age of imperialism is, don't you? <laughs> well, it's the imperial time. Yeah, go on. Give us the years. I know you feel it. It's 1800 to 1914. See, obviously. That's, yeah. Everyone knows that. Everyone right? knows it. <laughs> so Ireland between 1800 and 1914. Yep. Okay. Uh, then I guess I just need a topic. And the topic is? Fingers crossed. Mountain. Mount, mountain. Yeah, like those like mountains. all the mountains. Yeah, one that in... Dublin's on. <laughs> all the Irish mountains. All those Irish mountains. Okay, so, all right, so our next episode will be <laughs> mountains in Ireland during 1800 to 1914. All right, I'll do it. I look forward to seeing what you make of it. Right, so there you go. That is the end of the episode this week. Well done to you, PT. Thank you. And thanks to everyone for listening. If you'd like to get in touch about any of the things that Pete has talked about, uh, you can do that by reaching out to us on social media. So go to our website at hhepodcast.com or you can email us at peteandryan at hhepodcast.com. We would love to hear from you. We love hearing from people. And you never know, you might end up featured on one of our future shows. And one way to definitely feature on a future episode is to rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. And if you're a social media savant, if you're on TikTok or Instagram or Facebook or Twitter, you can find us at HHE Podcast. Uh, if you subscribe to those, you should get an alert when we post little one minute animated bites that we do, which you might, and we hope you would, enjoy. Okay, and we're going to be back again soon with the Right Honourable Lord Dursley himself, our judge jury and executioner in our after show podcast the verdict but in the meantime if you can't get enough you must have more of the show you can catch the back catalogue of episodes which you can find in your podcast app youtube or on our website hhepodcast.com i thought i'd join it you did that was good it was seamless yeah all right so a huge thank you to peter thank you very much ryan and that's it i guess all that's left to say is you've been listening to happen everywhere. Hey Ryan. Hey Pete. Uh, here, sign this for me. Sure, no worries. So, what is it? Oh, nothing much. There's a bit of admin, a small treaty. Treaty? Tre- what, treaty? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It says if either of us gets into trouble, the other one will come to their assistance. Oh, oh well, that's nice. Yeah, it is, isn't it? Let me in. What was that? Oh, that, that's probably Big Ron. Big Ron. What, like the gangster, the moneylender, the Croydon Capone? Yeah, yeah, that's him. Well, what's he doing here? Well, I may have borrowed some money, so I imagine in. he's here to collect. Well, what the, I suppose you better go and pay him then. I've heard what he does to people. Uh, well, here's the thing. I'm, I'm not sure I'm going to. What? Well, Article 5 of our treaty says that you have to support me in this exact situation, so I don't think I'm going to pay him. No, 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 no. Are you sure, mate? Mate, mate, surely it's better to just pay him than, than, than you having to go and answer the door. Ah, well, here's the thing. Article 9 says actually it's you who has to open the door. Really? Yeah, right here, look. Oh, oh right. Yeah. I, and, and you're money. sure you can't pay him? I'm pretty sure, yeah. Open this door. Uh, all right, well, a uh, treaty's a treaty, I suppose. Here we go. <laughs> open this right, door. Right, right, you come here! And we're done. I declare Exercise Big Scary Man 21 a complete success. Thanks, Big Ron. No problem, Pete. See you down the knitting club, yeah? Uh, thank you, Ryan. Good stuff there. Oh, yeah, Ryan. While I'm here, your repayment is overdue, my son. Pay up now, or I'll smash ya. Oh, um, yeah, well, no, I don't think I will, you see. You see, we've got a treaty between us. Right. I'm gonna rip your arms off. Get him, Pete. Oh, God!
I missed that. Could you, would you mind just... Albania, Belgium, Bulgaria, Canada, Croatia, Czech Republic, Denmark, Estonia, France, Germany, Greece, Hungary, Iceland, Italy, Latvia, Lithuania, Luxembourg, Montenegro, Netherlands, North Macedonia, Norway, Poland, Portugal, Romania, Slovakia, Slovenia, Spain, Turkey, United Kingdom and the United States. Hopefully that's all right. <laughs>